Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. So today I'll be doing the Bible reading, taken from the book of Matthew 2, 13 to 18. And at the end, I would say this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying thanks be to God. Matthew chapter 2, from verse 13 to 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Um, So like we do in Nigeria, happy new month. I'm sure a lot of us are looking forward to the, the month and the end of the year as well, and trust God that will come to us um, in good health. So we're starting a new series today, and um, we called it God With Us, Advent in Matthew. And so historically, the church calendar has kind of revolved around five periods. Um, there's Advent, the coming of Christ, Epiphany, the revealing of Christ. Um, there's Lent, the temptation and the death of Christ. There's Easter the resurrection of Christ, and this Pentecost, the spirit of Christ. And so our aim in this series is to really uncover what it means that God has come, that God is with us, God has revealed himself to us, and the implications of that for our lives, for our cities, for our work, um, the people around us. And so we'll be looking at the book of Matthew. No, I'm kidding. We'll actually be looking at two chapters in the book of Matthew um, that really trace the story of what it means that God has come, that Jesus Christ is God with us. And so over the next few weeks, starting today, we'll look at Matthew 1, um, um, 1 to 17, where we see that God is with women. We'll look at uh, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. We'll see that God is with those who are on the outside. We'll look at Matthew 2, 13 to 18. We'll see that God is with those who have no voice. And then lastly, we'll look at Matthew 2, um, 13 to 23. We'll see that God is with the refugee. And so we've taken a little bit of license 
um, not to go with the text in, in, in the chronological order that it's revealed. And that's not because we don't take the word of God seriously. Um, it's because some things came up and we had to work um, with what we have. And so today we'll be looking at a sermon titled God with the Voiceless. And we'll see that under two headings, um, Breaking All City Church Sermon Protocol. And we'll look at that under two headings. So uh, the first point is the voiceless children. We see that in verses 13 and 16 to 18. And the second point is the voiceless son. You'll see that in verses 13 to 15 and verse 18. Let's pray. Lord, we have sung that you should order our steps in your word. Lord, this is what we ask this morning. Instruct our hearts, instruct our tongues. Show us how to walk in accordance with your word. And let us not remain the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know about you. I'm a talker for Christmas. Like, I really like Christmas. Um, there's really something special about Christmas, um, particularly when I was growing up. My wife says I'm from the village, and I, I like to own it. But where, where I grew up, Christmas was always nice. Hamatan in the air. Everywhere was cool. We had lots of untarred roads, so there was a lot of dust. Um, and all the economic exiles, I like to call them economic exiles, my uncles, aunties, and my cousins, who had exiled themselves to Lagos, would return home. And so the house was full. I was always sharing my room with cousins. People were always coming. And one thing I liked particularly about Christmas was that people always brought gifts. So both of my parents are in the ministry. And there's a way people feel compelled during Christmas, like I have to give something to the pastor. And so the house is always loaded. <laughs> the house is always loaded with gifts. People will bring stuff, chicken, turkey, all of those things. And so I used to joke with my mom, like, man, if you want to hammer, just be a pastor. Because everybody would bring stuff for you. Of course, now I know better now that I've worked. I've worked with City Church for a while. So, nah, I'm joking. But I'm still a sucker for Christmas. I, I like playing, so I started playing Christmas songs like three or four weeks ago. And I stop, I usually stop around February. And then in the middle of the year, I still, I remind myself I played every once in a while. And there are lots of us like that here. We really like Christmas. Like, if not for your spouse, the Christmas decoration could be up until God knows when. And so we like Christmas because it brings something. There's something special about it. There's a feeling in the air. There's just something different. Um, there's lots of traffic. We don't like that part, of course. But it's the season when we want to shop, want to buy things, want to do something. There's something special because Christmas brings in something. But just think about it. What if there was nothing to look forward to? What if life just continued, like you slept on... November 30th, and you just woke up March 23. Like, all that beautiful in-between is just taken away. What if there was no light and it was perpetual darkness? And that's really how the text begins. The book of Matthew begins. You see, between Malachi 4 and Matthew chapter 1, there's something theologians call the 400 years of silence, where God wasn't speaking. Nothing was happening. There was no authoritative, prophetic voice hearing from God. The people of God had been taken, that's the people of Israel, they had been taken into exile, they had gone into captivity. 
And God had kept his promise that they will be released um, 70 years afterwards. And so that happened. But now they go back to their homeland, and the walls are broken down. We saw that last week. The walls are broken down. The temple is in disrepair. Everything is just upside down, really. It's a bunch of chaos. And so we saw last week how Nehemiah used his status and his influence and his power to help rebuild the wall. And um, the book of Haggai and Zechariah, among others, record how the temple is rebuilt again. And Ezra actually records in Ezra 3 that when the foundation was laid, that those who saw the new temple, who had seen the old temple, were weeping because it was nothing special to what they had before. So it was, it was a period of confusion. It was a bad period. But then, even when, we, when the biblical text ends, what keeps happening is that after the Babylonians lose power, um, the Persians come up, the Persians take over power, and then after the Persians, they are the Greeks, and after the Greeks, they are the Romans. And everything's just upside down. There's nothing really special about that period. There was a lot of killings, there was a lot of political upheaval. And so if you've heard of Simon the Zealot or Zealots in, in, in the Bible, this is really who they were. They were active during this period. They were like liberators for the people of Israel. They would go, um, if you watch Braveheart, kind of like what, what the guy in Braveheart used to do. They would go and bomb a place or, no, there were no bombs. They would go and kill people and stuff just to score a political point. And so, terrorists, thank you. <laughs> And so it is into this context that Advent happens. All of a sudden, Matthew begins his text by showing us that God sends an unlikely savior at an unlikely time through unlikely means. Nobody saw it coming. And he means for us to see this because he begins chapter 1 by showing us a very, very embarrassing family list. And we'll see that next week. He puts in prostitutes. He puts in people who... Um, um, violated, people whose children were violated, people who kept quiet, people who committed adultery, just a, a whole bunch of distorted characters that we wouldn't want to identify with. And God, um, God walks through that family line. And then he shows us again in the latter part of chapter one that the family into which the Messiah was born was nothing really special. There was nothing special about them. They were on the lower economic level in society. And so it's only until in chapter two that we get a sense that Maybe something is going on here because we are told that Magi actually visited the, the child that was born. And we are not told that there are three, okay? So the Bible doesn't say there are three wise men or three Magi, but Magi actually visited the child and gave him a gift. And so, in fact, actually, those guys actually thought that he must have been born into the royal family because they actually visit Herod first and say, ah, no, if this guy is special, if we've seen the star, we've seen all these things then it must be the royal family. And they get there, and they find out, oops, it's not here, and then they are redirected. And so we're introduced to our text today, the verses will be focused on. And so we see in verse 13 that God appears, an angel appears to Joseph and tells Joseph to escape because Herod has bad plans for the baby. And so let's look at verses 16 to 18 together. He says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. 
and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, many of us don't know who Herod is. We, we've heard about Herod the king, but we don't really know who he is. Remember at this point, the Davidic line, the, Davidic, the royal line is almost exterminated. Um, the people of God don't have any actual king from the house of David ruling over them. And so what happened was that it was Rome who was controlling things. And the Roman Caesar, who at this time was Caesar Augustus, was the one ruling and lording it over the known world at the time. And so what, what Rome used to do was they would appoint local people to serve as kings or as rulers in the places where um, they, they had authority. And so Herod was a guy, according to history, um, Herod was a guy who was, who, was, who was from a wealthy family, an upper middle class family. And so he had um, connections like we have in Nigeria and through some party party with Roman guys, he ended up becoming the king of Israel at the time. But he was not just a king. He wasn't just a bad guy. He was a very paranoid and ruthless person. We are told that he had his mother-in-law killed. He had his wife killed. He had three of his sons killed. And at the point where he was dying, because he knew that he was a very bad person and that nobody would mourn for him at his death, he asked that influential people be gathered together and be killed so that at least People will weep when he dies. That was the kind of person, despotic ruler, that Herod was. And so when the text tells us that Herod commanded that every little boy under the age of two be killed, guys, it really did happen. It wasn't just a figment of imagination like, oh, well, maybe they're just trying to paint him bad. He actually killed people. And it's easy for us to miss, right? Because verse 16 tells us that he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Let's just think about that for a minute. All the boys, two years old and under. All the boys, two years old and under. Just think about what that means. Think about what that night must have felt like for the people in Bethlehem on that day. Bethlehem was a small town, right? It was probably the stretch of like phase one to somewhere along Agogi, if it was that large. Think about what it meant that every family in that house, in, in that region, was touched in some way by the killing of those children. Think about what it must have felt for all of them to come to church if they, if, they, if they gathered for church or went to synagogue the following week. And service couldn't hold because literally everybody was weeping. If you don't know what that means, that means Pelumi and I, Pastor Femi and Tosi, Toki and Tomisi, Tedo and Susha, and everybody in this church who has a child two years old and under lost their children. And it wasn't that the children went to bed and didn't wake up. Or that there was a guy who was speeding along the express and the child was careless and just, you know, stepped in front of the car and was run over. It was that somebody deliberately took the lives of those children. I don't know if, you, if you've heard stories of how soldiers do these things. And people have always been evil. It hasn't just started now. 
And usually what happens when people do this kind of thing is that they have to take something. They have to take some drugs. They have to take some alcohol just to strengthen them to do this kind of thing. And so imagine a, a father who is trying to protect his, his wife and their newborn child have a sword or a spear thrust through them because the child was two years old and under. Or a soldier who has been so high and he sees a child who is small. And the mother is shouting, no, 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 this child is three, this child is four. He says, no, this child is small. It has to be two and under, and he kills the child. Or a soldier who, out of overjay, is really zealous. He sees a pregnant woman, he says, this child is under two. And he has his spear thrust into that child. And so you can imagine the carnage, the, the, the way people felt on that day. And Matthew quotes Jeremiah 13 to show how much sorrow and mourning is going on. He says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Weeping and great mourning because the children are no more. I don't know if you've ever lost a loved one. Maybe you had some time for closure. You had a time where you visited the person. And so it was bad, it was painful, but at least you got to spend some time with the child. But think what it must mean that a child that is two, that has all the promise of future, that has all the promise of life ahead of him, loses his life because he's a child under two. And so Matthew takes this picture that we see in the book of Jeremiah, where it's used to describe the groaning that Rachel, who is, who is symbolically um, represents the, the, the mother of God's people, the groaning she feels when the people of God are taken into exile, they're taken into captivity, into Babylon. And Matthew looks at that and he says, this is the weeping that happens in a world that is broken by sin. This is the weeping that happens when we let our selfish ambitions govern and rule us. It is the mourning over sin that makes us destroy because of our ambitions. You see, these children are silenced for the advance of Herod's kingdom. And what we see in this text is that if what is most important to you is your kingdom, you will kill to advance it. If what is most important to you is that my own purposes and my own mission and what I want to accomplish in the world is fulfilled, you will take life to advance it. These children are voiceless. They are in this story. They are right here, but we cannot hear them. It is almost as though they are like a noisy television and you press the mute button, except that they are not silent for a season. They are silent forever. This is what Herod does with his children. And so this is how they got rid of children they didn't want back in the day. They, they either allowed them to be born and kill them, or they allowed them to be born and just abandon them and, and threw them in places where wild animals would come to them and take their lives. And you might say, oh, that's so sad, Emmanuel. Uh, I'm really sad. It breaks my heart. But I thank God that it doesn't happen again in this day and age. But brothers and sisters, it does happen in this day and age. We have just replaced, we have just become more sophisticated in how we do it. 
We have replaced our swords and spears with pills and surgical blades from the doctor. Rather than do it in the public and abandon the babies there, we now do it in air-conditioned private rooms and clinics. As though the location of the place makes it better to kill. And so I, I dug into some, some things. I, I found an old paper. It's a bit of a dated paper, but um, if the statistics are true or were true when it was released, you can imagine what it is now. And so it's a 2006 paper, 12 years ago. 760,000 induced abortions happen in this country every year. If you don't know what 760,000 is, that is more, that is a daily average of over 2,000 children killed daily in this country every year. Imagine again, so everybody from phase one all the way to Agungi, imagine that we're killing them every, every day, every year, every day, every year. That, it was, that is what it means that we are slaughtering our children, more than 2,000 of them daily, every year. Among Nigerian women of reproductive age, the study says that's between 17 to 49. One in seven, one in seven have tried to have an abortion. And at least one in 10 have had an abortion. In other words, if you picked in a room this size, if you randomly picked 10 women between the age of 17 and 49, at least one of them has had an abortion. I want you to just think about what that means. And you may say, oh, well, yeah, it's a problem in society, but it's not really a problem for religious people. The study actually shows again that of the 10% who have had an abortion, a significant number of them were Christian. And so 19% of those people who identified, um, who, of those 10%, 19% of them were Catholic. 11% of them were Protestant. Put that together, that is 30%. These are people who supposedly say that they love God, they know God, they, they are committed to life. 30% of people who come to church, who know God, who hear the words of God, who would profess Christianity, have had their children killed. We have replaced our swords and spared swords and spears with pills and surgical blades. Well, you may say, oh, I hear you, Emmanuel, but that's not really a baby. They're just lumps of cell. A baby is not a baby until it's born. A baby is not a human being until it's born, right? Let me just read you something from, from a writer named Randy Alcorn in a book called Why Pro-Life. And, and again, I, I encourage you, it's a very short book. It sells at one, um, Bible Wonderland for just about 110 naira. It's a really good book if you can, if you can get your hands on it. This is what he says. He says, long before a woman knows she's pregnant, there is within her a living, growing human being. 
Between five and nine days after conception, the new person burrows into the womb's wall for safety and nourishment. Already, his or her gender can be determined by specific means. By 14 days, the child produces a hormone that suppresses the mother's menstrual period. 18 days after conception, the heart is forming. The eyes start to develop. By 21 days, the heart is pumping blood throughout the body. By 28 days, the unborn has budding arms and legs. By 30 days, she has a brain and has multiplied in size 10,000 times. By 35 days, her mouth, her ears, and nose are taking shape. At 40 days, the preborn child's brain waves can be recorded and her heartbeat, which began three weeks earlier, can already be detected by an ultrasonic stethoscope. By 42 days, her skeleton is formed and her brain is controlling the movement of the organs. No matter how she looks, a child is a child. And always abortion terminates that child's life. Brothers, we serve, brothers and sisters, we serve a God who Psalm 139 says very strongly that when I was in my mother's womb, he didn't just say God created me. He says God knits me together. If you know what it means to knit, my grandma used to knit, and it's one of the most technical things that anybody can do. You take pieces of thread, you are weaving them together to try to form a tapestry, to try to form something beautiful. That is what the Bible says God does when a child is born. A child is not just a lump of cells. A child in the womb is a human being. And so I'll just show us two pictures. The first one is a picture of a baby at five months. Um, and so a surgery was performed. The, the, child, the child was detected to have spina bifida. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disease of the, the spinal cord that would affect the child. And so they had to do a surgery in the, mother's, in the mother to bring out the baby, empty the, um, the sac of amniotic fluid, and actually work on that baby, the baby's hands. The second picture shows a baby at 24 weeks, the full arm stretched out. That is what God does in our, in our parents' room. Thanks. Some people don't like to see blood. But that is what is going on when a baby, when a child is formed, brothers and sisters, a child in the womb is very human and is a work of God. And I like the way someone puts it. You know, every now and then we hear about all these space explorations that try to look for life on Mars, that um, um, Richard Branson has developed a whole new airline that he's called Virgin Galactic. And the whole, whole aim of Virgin Galactic is to try to get people into space, space tourists. And they are trying and doing all they can to make sure that people can go into space. There's a lot of research going on about how much life there is on Mars and how people can move into Mars. And a pastor named Garekel puts it like this. He says, if we found on Mars what we found in the womb, we will be celebrating. In other words, if the little, so there's a lot of arguments, but if the little we find in the womb is what we find on Mars, people would celebrate. Nobody would say, oh, there isn't life on Mars. We would say, how can we develop? How can we stretch that to make sure that it actually accommodates as many people as possible? In other words, the baby in the womb is a living being. And so I remember when 
Pelumi and I um, went to to the doctors during her during our pregnancy to see um, to hear. So we're supposed to hear um, or just just see JD on on the sonogram. And when I heard the heartbeat, it was a very emotional experience for me. I could I just could not believe that there was somebody inside her whose heart was beating and pumping blood every single second. Brothers and sisters, the babies God gives us, the babies that are put into the womb, are not lumps of cell. They are not just mass of tissue. They are not just there. There's, there's not just something that is inside there. And please, don't call babies it. If you don't know the gender, just say, just say the baby. Because it is not just a neutral thing. It is a person that God has put in there. But you may say, oh, yeah, I hear you, Emmanuel. But you don't know my condition. You, you don't know my story. You don't know how difficult and shameful it would have been to have this child. And I said, that's true. And a lot of mistakes that people make, a lot of mistakes we make many times is that we think there's a one-size-fits-all for abortion, that everybody who, who goes into through this process is really one type of person who, who, is, who is thinking a certain way. But at least I, I can think of three, three scenarios. So there's, there's one, the unmarried person who is in university, and she and her boyfriend have um, been sexually active, and now they are pregnant. But they think, we still have our lives ahead of us. I really want to up, get to that career goal. I really want to finish my course. I don't want anything to stop me in university. And I'm young. I have my life ahead of me. And so they decide to take it. Or there's the person who tragically, tragically has been raped. She has been violated by, like I heard this week, her grandfather or by somebody else who, who took advantage of her. And so she decides to get an abortion. Or there are the married people who decide to go through with it. So Paul and Paulina are an underemployed family, husband and wife, slugging it out with five children. And then they hear that they are pregnant again. But they really can't afford it. So they decide to abort it. But brothers and sisters, even though this may be hard, please realize that there is no legitimate scenario under which it is right to take another person's life. You see, what we choose in our moments of discomfort shows us what we really value and what we prize. And so if we have to take the life of a child because of some inconvenience to us, some inconvenience to our career, some inconvenience to our economic status or to our mental health. We are more like Herod than like God. Remember, if your kingdom is the most important thing to you, you will kill to advance it. And so just like Bethlehem, where there were voiceless children, we continue to find voiceless children among us today. Some of us are the herald who have taken the lives of our own children. We didn't do it with swords and spears. We did it with, with pills and D and C. 
some of us are the parents or family members who advised our children our words to take the lives of their children because of the shame we will bring to our family name and the discrepancy we will bring to us in society. Some of us are the boyfriends who have protected our own status, who have protected ourselves, and acted for our own selfish interests. And we've even paid with advice. We were there. So it wasn't that I'm a callous guy. I was a good guy. I was there with her. And we even deceived ourselves to say that I will marry her eventually because I really love you. Or some of us are the husbands who have insisted that our wives take the lives of our children because we have believed more in the Nigerian economic society than in God. And so no matter where you look today, brothers and sisters, Herod continues to work in us and among us and around us to take the lives of our children. We silence our children to advance our kingdoms and advance our own causes. But you see, the text tells us more. And so we'll go to the second point, the voiceless son. We see that in verses 13 to 15. And we see that though Herod acted swiftly, God was swifter than Herod. And so we're told in verses 13 to 15 that when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, God was acting to protect this child. But notice how God does it. He comes to Joseph in a dream and basically says, he doesn't say, Joseph, they are going to, take your, they are going to try to take the baby's life. Just stay here, stay here, and I'll protect you. He basically says to Herod, guy, Run away. To who? What did I say? Yeah, did you guys hear it? I said Joseph. Sorry. <laughs> he basically says to Joseph, guy, run away. And you're like, what? Is this God? How could God tell them to run away? Couldn't God have protected their inn with the guard of angels? Couldn't God have made them invisible? Couldn't God have done it in such a way that, I, like in Nigerian films, as the soldier is about to strike like this, guy just freezes and he falls down and dies or something. And yes, he could. He could have. But this is really important for us in how we think about God's sovereignty and how God works. Because you see, although God is all-powerful, God often mediates his power through means. And so God says to them, escape, run away. It doesn't mean God wasn't working to protect the child. God was actually working to protect his child through human means. And you see, brothers and sisters, we must realize that part of our calling as God's children is that we are called to protect the children that God gives us. We are called to protect the unborn and the born, the people who are most vulnerable and voiceless among us. God is working through us. And when we do not live up to that calling as children of God, we're not acting in sync with what it means to be God's children. 
And so God tells the family to escape to Egypt and to stay there until Herod dies. And Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, where he, he quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. And you see, the prophet basically in Hosea is recalling God's deliverance of the people of Israel that happens in the book of Exodus. And so we find in Exodus 4, for instance, in 22 to 23, that God says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. You see, the nation of Israel is God's son who is called to worship and serve God. But like we, we said earlier, this son doesn't actually serve God. This son doesn't always do what God wants. And so God's plan is that he will send another son, a second son, who will succeed where the first Israel failed. And so Matthew points to this text as a fulfillment of what will be true about the life of Christ, that Christ will work deliverance for God's people for all time. And so in a definitive undoing of our Herod-like mindsets, God comes as a baby, as a baby that is voiceless and that needs protecting. And we see Jesus throughout his life undoing our Herod-like mindsets in dealing with our children. And so in Matthew 19, 13 to 15, Jesus blesses the children and rebukes the disciples for stopping them from coming to him. In Matthew 21, 14 to 17, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for asking them to stop children from coming to from praising him. And let me just, as an aside, if I parent here who thinks, what are they doing in city kids? Jesus is rebuking you this morning. Mark 5, 21 to 43, Jesus walks several miles to heal the little daughter of Jairus. Mark 9, 14 to 29, Jesus heals a little boy or a boy who has epilepsy. Mark 9, 33 to 37, Jesus gives his disciples the ultimate insult and tells them, don't grow up, but rather become like little children. Brothers and sisters, there is no group of people who ought to protect and love children more than the people of God. But you see, Jesus didn't just come as a child who was voiceless to protect and speak for voiceless children. He actually became the voiceless son of God who gave up his life so that we don't have to take the lives of our children. And so in verse 15, we are told, And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so you remember again, like I said, this is, truly a, this is really a picture about the deliverance that Jesus will bring. And the prophet Isaiah, prophesying 700 years in advance, tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 7, that he was oppressed, speaking of Christ, and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shares is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not just come as the voiceless son in birth, but he became the voiceless son in life and death. And unlike Herod, he did not silence others to advance his own kingdom, but he chose to be silent so that the kingdom of his father could advance. If your kingdom is the most important thing to you, you will take life. 
to advance it. But if God's kingdom is the most important thing to you, you will give your own life to see it advance. And so this is the meaning of Advent. When we say that God is with us, God comes to save us from our sins, the sins of living for ourselves, of sacrificing others for our own ambitions and our own kingdoms. And he gives us the true life that comes from living for him and his own kingdom. If you're not a Christian here this morning, can I invite you to place your faith in Christ? If you have taken the life of voiceless children, can I say that there is room at the cross of Christ for you to redeem you and redeem that sin? And if you are contemplating this week, you have a scheduled appointment, or somewhere down the line you are thinking about it, can I say that please don't go there. Don't take those pills. The grace of God can redeem that sin and can redeem that shame. And if you're a Christian here and you have a past of actually having done these things, you have a past where you have silenced the voice of children, can I remind you where your hope lies? Your hope does not lie in what you have done or not done. Your hope lies in what has been done for you by the voiceless Son of God. And so when you are weeping and mourning, like Rachel in verse 18, and you are crying your eyes out, can I remind you, that Jesus has taken his shame on your behalf. Or you are here and you've lost children at birth or later in life. Jesus has taken all of that upon himself. And if I can just press us on how to just do this more regularly, speak up for the voiceless in our lives and in our, at places where we find ourselves, just give us five quick points. SSS. No, S-S-A-A-L. S-S-A-A-L. The first one, supplicate, pray more. And I was actually convicted this week, like men, 760,000, 2006. Try to work out what the difference will be today and how much more children are dying regularly. We need to pray that God will stop this. We need to pray that God will never let there come a day where it will be legal to take the lives of children in our country. We need to pray that God will open the eyes of those who perform these acts to make them stop it. We need to pray, supplicate. The second one, support. A good number, and it doesn't absorb them, but a number of reasons why people go through with these things is because they think that they are accepted because of what they are and what they've achieved. And so parents, those of us who are older siblings, those of us who are in places of authority, can I urge you, please let's support women when they go through the process of having an unwanted pregnancy. Let's, let's encourage them. Let's care for them. Let's honor them. Let's draw them close. Let's not be, be the people who push them away. Supplicate, support, but also advocate. Advocate. Last year, my wife um, saw a tweet on Twitter by somebody who is supposedly a Christian, supposedly a Christian in this city. And the person says basically, well, I support homosexuality and I support abortion laws because the Bible says that um, choose you this day who you shall serve. And so basically the Bible gives us the right to choose. That is nonsense. That is nonsense. Let's speak 
out in the places where God puts us. There is nothing, there is no circumstance, there is no situation where it is legitimate to take the life of another person. And as much as possible, let's speak out. In love, in love, but let's speak out firmly. Let's advocate. Fourth, supplicate, support, advocate, adopt. There is a reason why Matthew 18, Matthew 1, 18 to 25 is in the Bible. Do you know what it means that Joseph actually slept with a, another woman who had a baby that wasn't his own? Or what it must have meant for Joseph to raise up a child that was not his own? But Joseph adopted that child. He raised up that child as his, as his own. And brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us over and over again, Romans 8 in Galatians, that God has given us in Christ the spirit of adoption. Adoption, there are few things like adoption that communicate the spiritual reality of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And so if you find a child that, that is like that, if you find a child, and God may be calling some of us like that here, adopt children. Adopt children. And, and lastly, let us love children. And here, I, I, I think I'm, 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 I'm um, complicit. And a lot of us younger people are, are complicit. Those of us who get married, and we usually say things like, oh, I want to just be married to my spouse for two years. I don't want any disturbance. There's a problem, there's a deep problem when we think of children as disturbance. And I'm not saying that you have to get pregnant immediately, you get married. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if the way we are thinking about children is primarily as disturbances, as people who inhibit us in moving ahead in life, there is a deep problem there. We are more like Herod than like God. There's a reason why God says that the fruit of the womb is his reward. There's a reason why God delights to give us children. And so let's love children. When they are disturbing us here like they do, when they run around us, when they are constantly badgering us, let's see it as the privilege of our lives to care for them, to protect them, to raise them, to love them. They won't always be that way. God gives us these children because it is our calling as his people to protect them and to love them. And so we must supplicate, we must support, we must advocate, we must adopt, and we must love these children. And so again, this is what it means that God has come to be with us. God comes as a voiceless child and dies as the voiceless son so that we in our different places might be people who speak out for the voiceless children around us. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos. <laughs>